I don't want to offend. What if they I'm scared to say what I feel. What's wrong and I go with see me? what they want to see. Everybody else seems fine. Just say it. This is Jen Slumack. You're listening to the podcast Just Say It, a show that aims to highlight the common places among us. Man, everybody's welcome. I don't care who you worship, how you vote, or who you love. Bring an open mind that is willing to listen, reflect, and grow. As we amplify a variety of voices, conversations, and questions, we hope to make social constructs obsolete and move together toward Dr. King's beloved community. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I am with Deatrice Simpson, founder of DLS Inspirations, LLC, and author of the all-inspiring book, Chains Are Meant to be Broken, a preparation for mental and emotional healing. Deatrice is a change agent who inspires and empowers others in their transformation process. She does this through training, development, and consulting work, and she works with executives, middle management, and direct service providers uh, with the aim to help them become extraordinary which I think is a wonderful introduction for the woman we get to talk to today. Uh, I met Diatra a while ago as we were, cro- we crossed paths um, as we were both sort of seeking to implement our dreams of this work, of this transformation work. And um, so it was a while back that we first took a walk. We decided when we first met, you want to take a walk? Sure. So we took a walk and we just kind of batted back and forth um, our faith and our hope and our dreams for serving and how we both hoped to do that. So I am thrilled that we have crossed paths again and that I have the opportunity to introduce you to Deatra Simpson. Good morning, good afternoon, Deatra. Good morning, good afternoon, Jen. Now I'm gonna brag on you for a second, uh, just so the audience knows that you're even so much more than what I just described. Deatra went for a four mile run this morning, folks. I can't, look. My knee would be like, mm, no, sit down, sit down, old lady. <laughs> yeah, I actually wear knee braces on both of my knees and was determined to not be limited by the pain in my body. So, Look at you. Determined yeah. not to be limited. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to talk about some of that. Um, I think that's part of what, what developed us into kindred spirits. So Let's just jump right in. I'm interested in if you could tell us about your book. Why? What inspired you to write your book? Chains are meant to be broken. Oh my goodness! In um, any way you want to get to that question. Thank you. What inspired me was my pain. I was actually in a great deal of emotional pain when I was in the process of writing this book and. During that time in my life, I wanted to experience what it was like to have a real reliance on God and what that would mean to me as it relates to mental and emotional suffering. And so there will be times that I would be in so much emotional pain that it would be vibrating from my being and I would invite comfort to come in because what I had learned about my pain prior to this particular time in my life is that if I did not take the initiative to shape my pain into what I wanted it to be, then it would turn around and shape me into what it is that it could. So I didn't want to, you know, turn into a bitter person or a closed off person, but I was really intentional about showing up in love 
showing up and honoring myself and honoring others. And what I experienced during this particular time of writing this book was that healing is possible. Um, okay. Well, listen, thank you for that. Beautiful. And how do you do that when you're in pain? How do you do? Okay. Cause that sounded really good. Now take me back to the woman who was in tremendous emotional pain. Uh, share with us whatever you're willing to share with us, please, about what that pain looked like. Um, and how do, where, wh what do you attribute the clarity that allowed you to choose? What do you attribute that clarity to? Because I've been in a lot of pain and clarity is not the first thing that comes through it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, wow. Can you say the first question again? Yeah, I'm just inviting time. you to share whatever you're willing to share about what, what this pain that you were in, what that looked like or what brought you to that, just so that we have a sort of context of uh, where you've come from. Okay. So during that particular time, I wanted to die. So I was waking up crying and I was going to bed crying and that's how visceral my pain was. Um, I was broken hearted. I felt alone. The love of my life was no longer in my life and I couldn't understand why I was in that situation when I had done all of the things that I felt was within my power to become a better woman and that somehow that wasn't enough. And so long ago, like even as I was on my run today, there's a piece where I can go to the water. And long ago, I made a decision that I wanted to live. And I feel like from that decision, even though I didn't know how to live when I made the choice to live, that I began to manifest that in how uh, I uh, started to live my life. So I made conscious decisions about wanting to show up in love. And in order to show up in love, I needed to understand what love meant to me, not what was familiar to me, because before love um, was something that was harsh, that tore me down, that didn't accept me, that didn't, you know, love me. And so I really had to take a deep dive into me and loving me and getting to know me and getting to know what did I like, um, what inspired me, um, what encouraged me what helped me to see the reflection of me that made me feel like I was honoring me. And at a certain point during that time, like my whole family was gone, my husband and my children, the house was empty. And that was my rock bottom. That was the point where I said, enough is enough. These old ideals are not working for you. And like not being transparent in your love and how you feel about the people in your life is not working for you either. And like, what are you willing to do? And I believe in that moment, I just became willing. I became willing to do everything. I began to really look at um, the resentments that I was holding on to. And I went through this whole forgiveness process. And where I wrote out all of the names, I wrote out all of the things. It didn't matter, even if it was the kids. <laughs> I was like, I forgive you for this, you know. Uh, it didn't matter if it was petty. I just needed to be as rigorously honest with myself as I could. And then I would burn it afterwards. 
because my decision was that I was not going to continue to live with those things that I was relieving myself of the burden of those resentments. And I was also relieving them by default of relieving myself. And so then the thoughts would come out throughout the day. And when those thoughts would come up, I would bring them into captivity. I would pull them down and I would say, no, I forgive you. And I would have that transformation type conversation with myself on a very regular basis. Um, also during this time, I was going into families and I was helping families to heal. And one of my particular clients, I, for some reason, asked him if he would let me love him until he could love himself. And one day I was on the road to his house and I was enraged about my life. And it just came to me very purely, like, choose this day whom you're going to serve. You can't, you, you're either going to serve anger and rage and bitterness, or you're going to serve love and hope and forgiveness. Like, what, what is it? How are you going to live your life? Because you're not going to be able to show up with this person, you know, um, living in a lukewarm place. And so on that road to his home, I made the decision. I choose comfort. I choose love. And I choose forgiveness. And so it was through the lens of working with other people in their healing journey that I seen that healing was possible for me, that hope is real, hope is tangible, hope can be manifested, hope can be nourished, hope can be, um, you know, brought up from the ashes like the phoenix, you know? Um, I do, I do. And so... Thank you for that. You said so many things, so many things. That was so rich. And uh, I know just from knowing you, who you are, and that that richness uh, is part of what I love about you and part of what I admire about you. Um, and part of why I am honored to walk alongside you in this journey that we call life. You said a few things that I really wanted to sort of highlight um, that at one moment you, you decided that you wanted to live. I think that's a really big moment in a lot of people's lives that we typically don't discuss with others. We don't usually say that out loud. When we're in the battle of depression, uh, whatever that looks like for us, and we may or may not call it depression. I don't mean to uh, you know, call things that you've experienced something. In my experience, what you described, I would call depression for me. And in that, in that place, uh, really looking at, do I want to live or do I want to die? Really legitimately considering those two options uh, is a very scary place to arrive. And I'm fortunate that I've uh, come up in a community of people who do walk in a way that they seek to heal. And so I've got community to turn to when I, when I had those feelings and thoughts. But generally, people don't say those things out loud. Those aren't things that we share with others. And so I just want to say to my audience, um, for them, I want to say thank you for naming it, for saying it out loud, and for saying that we can privately or publicly make a decision to live, choose to live. I decided I wanted to live. You know, and then you talked about the old ideas weren't working for you anymore. I think that uh, sometimes we become who we are and we will sort of turn comfortably to, well, that's just who I am. If you don't like it, get out. But I think a different level of maturity and 
development is necessary or faith or something, something else is necessary to step around the easy excuse of this is who I am and leave and really look at who do I want to become? What information would I, was I given? What, what information have I absorbed living this life that has led me to where I am, where I've had to decide whether I want to live? And what of that am I taking with me from this point? And what of that am I going to leave behind? And that's really important work. And uh, I also heard you say that it was within working with others, uh, moving them in the direction of hope, providing hope, that hope is something we can manifest and we can nurture, that it was your work in doing that with others that allowed you to sort of do that even more so with yourself. And I'm a huge proponent of we need each other in so many ways. So, so you got us to the point where you were doing this work. When then did you write the book? In the midst of it. In the midst of it. In the midst of it. So I would be working with my clients all day and in the wee hours of the night because I had insomnia. I couldn't <laughs> sleep. And I was very intentional about what I did with my time. And so I would pour myself into chains are meant to be broken. So tell me about the work that you do and how, how is it, what exactly do you do for uh, clients and executives and service providers to help them become extraordinary? So I really am a person about relationships. Everything is about relationship. And so what I do is I help them to look at relationship through three lenses. The first relationship with self, right? And then the relationship with others, which is whether it's with your leader, with your colleagues, with your team, with external partners, just looking at relationship with others and then relationship to the work and understanding that all three of those will impact um, morality, right? Like our moral standard, right? Whether or not I'm mentally and emotionally conditioned to be able to operate at my best as it relates to the functionality of this job and the task at hand. And so oftentimes we miss the person and we only look at the title. Well, you're expected to do this because this is your job. And so we've even cultivated organizational cultures where it's all about the job and not about the person. And so when I worked with families, a part of that is like working with the kid, working with the parent, working with the family as a system and then doing um, extra familial work, which is like community-based work. And so when I would work with the parent, I would say, I need to work with the person who is the parent, right? Because I don't want to miss them. And what it taught me was that if that person don't feel seen, heard, and understood, how then will they even have the desire to give that experience to their child or to their significant other. And so I took that and I translated that into working with organizations. Like why would that leader inspire them when they don't feel inspired, when they are feeling inadequate themselves? How do I help them to build up their self-esteem, their self-worth, who they are, and like what ideals are not working for them that is showing up in the workplace and dictating how they're leading their teams? Likewise with the team, right? So 
the team may come in, especially if they feel like they're in a powerless state, helping them to see that you have a chair at this table just as well as the leader and you are responsible for that chair as well. And so what is it that we need to do to build you up so you can take accountability and so that you can be invested in the health and the wealth of your team and how you guys produce as a whole. Um, and then with regard to working with executives, executives, when I think about executives, those are the people who are uh, leading the leaders who are then leading the teams. And sometimes they focus so much on the task that they lose sight on their responsibility to develop the leader. And sometimes they're like, I don't even know how to develop you. So can you just go figure it out and get it done? And so my objective here is to say, hey, like I really need to help you to become a developmentalist, right? Because it's the work and it's the decisions that you do that's really gonna regulate and govern the morale of this organization. And that's within your responsibility. Um, because oftentimes the responsibility is put on middle management. And so it's like, no, let's put it where it goes so that as a whole, we are transforming and as a whole, we are working towards our goal in a way that honors each other and honors the work and honor who we want to be. That's so fantastic. I mean, really, you know, fantastic just doesn't seem adequate. I just, I'm really, uh, I'm, I think what I want to say is I'm grateful to hear you say that that work is being done. Um, I, I have a heart for sort of exposing broken systems, you know, and not in an accusatory way and not in a, you know, uh, get your, you know, get your, you know, not, not in a way that destroys but in a way that reveals, in a way that uh, discovers, you know. Uh, I just spoke with a teacher who taught for 32 years, and we talked about um, the expectations put on teachers and how through all of that time, she knew of some of the things that her children, her students were going through, and they attempted to consider that when teaching, but that the identity of some of these students was so tangled in trauma, was so tangled in low self-esteem that you can't reach them with photosynthesis. And trying to, and so, so I thought of that as you were speaking because I think that so frequently we have found ourselves right now in our society uh, chasing bottom lines, chasing objectives, chasing goals, and none of these things are possible unless we are manipulating people, unless we put the development of people before the objectives and the bottom line and all of these things. And we don't do that. Money comes first. Uh, competition has to be, we have to be ahead of the competition. We have to own a certain amount of the market share. We have to reach this goal by this conference date. We, you know, there's, there's goals and deadlines and all of this. And the human being gets lost in that, Deatra, as you know. And so what I hear you saying is let's bring this back to relationships. Let's bring this back to human beings, right? We are amazing. We are incredible creators. We are incredible uh, manifestors of hope. 
right? We can do amazing things together when we learn how to communicate with each other, to listen to each other, to nurture, to build up each other. When I worked in the jails, we had this thing every morning we would start our class. We would say, hug a hater, build a brother up instead of break a brother down, right? I had, I had my students, we would chant that every morning and we would say it until we giggled. But I wanted to get that in their heads, man, right? It's so easy to judge somebody and to find an easy target, somebody that you can sort of ridicule to make yourself feel bigger than or better than. But it's, it can be so very difficult to take a moment of your own time and walk over to somebody who seems to be holding up the line and just be real with them. How you doing? Give them a smile. I see you. You know what I'm saying? And that will pay tenfold in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and so I, I honor what you're doing. I honor how you're doing it. And I also think it speaks to your future that it comes from a place of your own difficulty and struggle and calling to know the importance of uh, an individual being motivated from within, right? That's another thing that we do is we motivate from without all the time. And uh, joy and peace and harmony and uh, progress are made when we are aligned with motivation from within. Yeah, and in order to motivate a person truly, we must know them. And even for my own self and my own healing, I needed to know me to motivate me. Um, I needed to know me to honor me. And I really was able to shift from a place of something outside of me telling me who I am versus me being able to define who I am and saying, oh, I could check what you're saying against what I believe about me, right? Um, That you can only affirm what I already believe, but you cannot tell me who I am. And so when I'm working with teams and I'm developing coaches, I work with a team of coaches and uh, who are you? Who do you want to be? because that's what I'm gonna join myself to. And respectfully, if you give me permission, I'm gonna help you to grow in that. So you can become the reflection that you really wanna see. Those are challenging questions to ask somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think we might not realize how challenging unless we ask ourselves that question, who are you and who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of us will define ourselves by what's exterior to us. I am a wife, I am a student. I am a worker. I am a mother. I, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. When you came out of the womb, when you got smacked on the butt, when you first realized that there was a world so much greater than your house out there, what did you dream of? What excited you? What brought you to life? That, I think, is what you're asking. Am I right? Yeah, and I'm asking for them to decide for themselves um, because that is the gift in it. To introduce to them that you can formulate your own conception of self that will help you to become who you want to be. And if there are any beliefs that are contrary or any words that are spoken to you that are contrary that you don't have to receive it, 
Can you tell me more about that in your personal experience? Are you willing to share with us one of the sort of constructs or one of the sort of ideas that you had uh, adopted that somebody else gave you of who you were and then how you turned that around? Yes. So, and this is something, wow, it just made me emotional. I saw that. So I'll take a step back and talk about my clients, right? I love you, Ma. I love you too. All right. So when I'm coaching um, clinicians, so these are master level, doctoral level people who are going out and they're talking about the behavior of their client. And I say, I challenge you to understand that that behavior is a demonstration of the severity of their pain. Are you willing to see them in their pain versus seeing what the pain has produced in them because Mm. it is unresolved. And so when people would see me, they would say, she mean, girl, you mean, you just mean, look at that look on your face. They had no idea how I felt I needed to protect myself in my own life. That that mug on my face was keeping men at bay for some reason. That's right. Because I came up in a very vulnerable environment where there was a great deal of abuse, where there was a great deal of mistreatment towards children and towards women. So I did what I had to do to protect myself. And it was one day, one day I was a teenager and I was standing at the bus stop. And I don't know what I was looking like, what I was going through. I was going through a lot then because during that time I was 14 years old. I sent my stepdad to prison, you know, but I'm sitting at the bus stop. I'm standing there and this blue minivan drives past me and I didn't think anything of it until it turned around and came back and it rolled the window down and there was a woman and she said, are you okay? Hmm. And for the first time in my life up to that point, I felt seen wow. beyond, oh, she must be mean. Yeah. And then I remember as an adult, one of my aunties was like, you mean, you know, <laughs> that's just who you are. And I said, no, I'm not. That's not who I am. That's right. That's what I use to protect myself. And now I know no, I no longer need that as a weapon. I am love. And as I define it. Amen. What a story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, and you know, just a, a note to our listeners and to all of us in general, uh, be the woman in the blue minivan. Mm. Pay attention. We don't have... The world that we're in right now could use a shift. This is my personal opinion. We could use a shift in the direction of connection, in the direction of truth, in the direction of love. Agape love, like the big love, not like, you know, come here, baby, cuddle me love. I'm talking about, you know what I mean? I'm talking about turn your minivan around love. And we could use a turn in that direction. And it's not necessary. It's not it's not critical that everybody picks up a sign and goes out in the picket lines or, or, or does any huge, like, you know, quitting their job and, and turning into, you know, uh, a mentor, like there's big things that we can get caught up in. Well, I can't do much to change cause I've got my life and this and that, and that's fine. But you could smile at somebody. You could meet somebody in the eyes. You can see somebody 
15 times a day at the grocery store, at the bus stop. And that, that softens us also, right? She saw you probably, my guess, obviously we haven't spoken with her, right? <laughs> but she saw you probably because she remembers being you. Huh? And she recognized beyond the mug. She saw the light. She saw the love. She saw the precious. She saw the purpose behind the way you stood to protect yourself at that bus stop. And she came back to let you know, I see you. Amen. You reminded me of a story, if I might, uh, in high school. Uh, I remember I wanted to be friends with everybody, man. I was friends with the burnouts. I was friends with the drama kids, the popular kids, the athletes. Like, I just wanted to be everybody's friend, right? And I didn't fit anywhere because I, I loved everybody, right? I remember I was walking down the hallway one day. And one of those from what would be called at that time the nerd group, uh, who I adored, I was in theater with came up to me and walked alongside me until I looked at her and I started giggling and I stopped and I said, what? And she said, my God, you just look like you're ready to kick somebody's ass. The way you walk. I said, I wouldn't hurt a fly. She goes, well, I'm not going to get in your way to test it. And I thought, I mean, that kind of broke my heart because like you, I hadn't articulated yet that I was protecting myself. But I had learned to strut in the way that my brother and his friends did in the neighborhood that I lived in because people weren't quite sure what to do with that when they saw a girl walking down the street walking like that. And it kept folks at bay. And it empowered me. Because inside, I was ready to break. Inside, I was tender. And so thank you for challenging executives and people outside of the immediate, you know, wellness areas that society provides. Thank you for challenging people to see the behavior as a manifestation of one's pain that has not been resolved. Because that's what I see in the world all the time, right now even. I see it all the time, like in my mind almost, when I, when I see riots or when I see fights or when I see shootings, when I see all that stuff, you know, I see this tender, it's like those heat maps. You know those heat maps that you could see like into a building, like you could see where the people are because of the heat map? That's kind of how I see our world, but the heat maps is the tenderness and the somebody's baby and then all the rest is noise. All the rest is noise. And I long for a day that we can learn to see somebody's baby behind the noise, right? And nurture each other into a world that doesn't need the noise. Wouldn't that be something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're doing that for us. You're doing that work. You're doing that work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything you'd like to say or share with us or, or anything more? Maybe 
maybe share a part of your book or I don't know. We still have time and, and I certainly uh, think the space is ripe. Just want to invite you in in whatever way you feel moved. Okay. Are you about to read from your book? I think so. Okay, good. So when I wrote my book, it was really about looking at the construct of the belief system. Hmm. Because in my experience of what was revealed to me is that the crux of the problem is in what I believe. Because once something becomes a belief, it goes to the hidden part or the subconscious part of your mind. And when it moves to the subconscious part, you shift to autopilot mode, right? And in accordance to the belief. You're talking my, so, my language now. I love yeah. this stuff, Ma. I love this stuff. Go ahead. <laughs> right? And so when yeah. it's switched to autopilot mode, the brain does that to make life easier right. for you. That's right? right. And so now I don't have to think as much. I can just align myself to that belief. Well, what if it's a corruptible belief? Yeah. What if it's a belief that tell you to not trust people, tell you that everybody's going to hurt you, a belief that says it's better to put your walls up than to be vulnerable, a belief that tells you that you'll never find love, that you're not worthy, that you're not enough. What if those are the beliefs that are in the hidden part of your mind that's dictating your emotions and your thoughts and your interactions with people, not just from that lens, but also from how you see, from how you hear your word choice and how you're speaking things into your life just because of what you believe. And like, what if, what if you just took the time to investigate your belief system? And so this was my attempt on investigating my belief system and to inspire other people to investigate their belief system. And so there are three, there are seven links within the chain that I believe need to be broken. And that is the event. And so when I'm talking about the event, right, like you can't undo something happening in your life, but your understanding of what happened or what you can glean from it can shift, right? And then your experience from the event, even though we know, well, you know, I can't break how it made me feel initially, but again, we can grow in understanding of what that experience was um, put in our life to give us. Because in our minds, we start to think everything is bad. Once something happened, oh shoot, uh-uh, I got to put this wall up because they gonna hurt me. And what we're telling ourselves is that I can't handle the pain, right? And so from there, you have anger, right? And you have unwillingness and, and those, are the things that fortify, fortify the walls around our heart, right? Because anger is like, hey, I'm not gonna let you get close to me, right? That's that walk you was talking about. Hey, I got to put this on. Oh, you better back so up. Uh-oh. You don't get close to me. And then yeah. unwillingness is tricky because unwillingness, when it's linked to a belief, yeah. it causes for you to not be receptive to another alternative may i pause you there 
Yes. Please, please put your finger on it. Don't lose where you're headed. Okay. Unwillingness creates a lack of receptiveness. I am not receptive. This is the piece that I speak to all the time in the relationships that we have in this world. We are taking behaviors and, and, and defining people by them rather than recognizing that behavior is a manifestation of unhealed pain. Once we have the, I just want to go back a bit. Once the event happens in our lives and then what we experience, which is the, the pain from that event, that's where fear sets in. And so fear sets everything in motion right because the brain's primary objective is to keep us safe right and then after keeping us safe is to give us pleasure right because if we're getting if we're protected and we have pleasure then the brain is doing its job for us <laughs> right and so fear sets in and fear sets in as just a mechanism to protect that's what the brain uses and i think that's something that us as, uh, as human beings need to understand how the brain uses fear. And it's not that the brain want to harm you. It's just that the, the brain is desperate to protect you. Mm -hmm. So fear is the only thing that will cause you to retract. Mm -hmm. Fear is the only thing that will cause you to say, oh, no, I got too close to that. I don't want to get close. I don't want to mm -hmm. get burnt. Right. Mm -hmm. Fear is mm -hmm. the only thing, which is why it's the key motivator that the brain uses. It triggers fear in us. But the word of God says, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And when I look at the spirit of fear, which is timidia, it means faithlessness. Whoa. So I have not given you a spirit of faithlessness, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Mm. But now you have anger that's kicked in. You have unwillingness. So now I'm unwilling to hear what you got to say. You see it all the time. Oh, well, I don't care. Right. And, and the person is not willing to hear or receive until you demonstrate it to them that you see them and that you hear them and that you understand them without judgment. When I bring a person to that place, I've helped them to position their hearts to be open. Right. So after unwillingness comes resentment, mm. right? And so we generally look at resentment like, I'm mad at you, girl. <laughs> but and rightfully so. And what, rightfully so. What I understand is that resentment is just a reflection of how I see myself. All of this is. So I'm mad at you because I'm mad at me. Mm. Right? Because in reality, when I have these beliefs that that's keeping me, mind you, from experiencing my heart's desires. I'm mad. That's right. Because I, I need love. We were designed and created in love, by love, and for love. Yes. So I'm telling myself I can't have love in my life because of what I've been through. Mm. And you think bitterness not going to set in? And now I'm mad at you because you can't help me overcome my resentment? I'm mad at myself because I don't know how to do it. So resentment is a link that needs to be broken. Um, 
And something else that I talk about here is self-pity. And I talk about self-pity, not just in a way of like, everything's happening to me and I'm so powerless in my life. But I talk about the potency of self-pity. There's something potent about it um, because it disguises itself as comfort. When we feel sorry for self, it feels like comfort, but it is a false sense of comfort. The spirit of God is comfort. Jesus said, I go so that the comforter may come and that the comforter is going to dwell inside of you. So that's why when I was in the midst of this pain, I was intentional when the pain was active in my being, I choose comfort. Comfort, I ask you to come in right now. You said that you will give me peace that surpasses all a man's understanding. I need to experience that peace because I'm inviting you in in the place of self-pity. The other thing that happens while I was writing this book, okay, my 16-year-old nephew committed suicide. And one of the things that was clear to me is that self-pity says, I can't and God can't either. Where can you go? And then it started helping me to see how significant hope and hopelessness is. That hopelessness leads us to wanting to take our own lives. That's how necessary hope is for us. I want to do a whole episode with you on that. Mm -hmm. I've adopted the subtitle Hope Dealer myself. It's something that I have tagged as part of my, you know, letters behind my name, so to speak. And, and I say that, you know, playfully, but, but it, it's as serious to me as the way you just said it when I say, that I've cho- it, it's part of that I've decided to live. It's part of that for me. I'm a hope dealer because I've walked in to people's lives who are in so much pain that nobody could see. And I've said, I see you. And I saw the light turn back on. I know that one artist, one musical artist has in my life been a lifeline that provided hope that people like me were out there. Hope can find you in many, many ways, ways that you wouldn't expect. And I don't care how it gets to you. I believe God is everything or God is nothing. That's my belief. And I believe God will find you through a comic if it needs to. I believe God will find you through somebody at the grocery store, through somebody in a minivan while you stand at the bus stop. I believe that. And I think hope is critical. And when I worked in the jails and the prisons, I was just talking on on another episode with a teacher, Kim Boardman. We were talking about these things as educators. And I said, you know, yeah, we had curriculum. 
And I certainly made sure that, you know, the things that I was teaching, I was teaching about addiction and recovery and the broken family and family systems and communication skills and anger management, all those kinds of things. So I taught the curriculum because it was important. But I also, I etched out time every day in class and one day a week to see the men in my class, to hear the men in my class. I spent the hour and a half drive to work getting myself right Mm. so that I could be a source of hope, of light in that darkness. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry to hear about your nephew. I think I did know that. I think I was around when that happened, if I'm not mistaken. And I have to say that what you said uh, self-pity says I can't and God can't either. That's powerful. Mm. That's powerful. The power of hope. Okay. We don't have to give nobody nothing but hope. Just give somebody some hope, y'all. Just love somebody. Crying out loud. And recognize another thing that you've taught us today that you've shared with, with the folks who listen and thank you for it is I got to get me right first. I got to know who I am. Man, our life can be littered with extravagant distractions. Oh, I could get distracted by the news, by politics, by a baseball team, by an ex, by a baby mama, by uh, a tax payment, by a bill. I could, anything, there's so many things that can keep me from sitting down, getting quiet and asking myself what I want and asking for comfort to come in. We have to make time. We have to make time to let comfort in. I really hold you up. I really do. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a privilege and an honor to spend this time with you um, to talk about these things. and. I want to say something about depression really quickly because I was in a steep depression. That's something that we talked about. I was in a deep depression. And one day I was with a friend and I was telling her about how I was invited to go somewhere, but that I thought I was just going to stay at home. And she had saw me that day too. She said, if you stay at home, you're choosing depression. Hmm. And if you choose depression, I'm going to kick your butt. And for the first time in my life, I heard in my spirit that depression is a choice, that depression is a mindset that I had put on. And with that mindset, it come a whole slew of thoughts and emotions and, and and it even shows up in my body and that that was a choice. And I began to declare that I would be broken away from depression because there's a, the word of God says that, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I said, so I can see my strength, but where's the joy? Where's the joy? Because I know I'm strong. I didn't go back to drugs. I didn't go back to alcohol. I'm not fornicating. I'm not abusing anybody in my life. I'm showing up in love. So I see the strength, but where's the joy? And that depression was broken off of my life. Not only that, I, be, I began, I said, God, before I can move forward in this work and helping somebody else, I need to see the evidence of my faith in my life, in my family. 
And I began to put my faith in God. I said, I need this mountain to be moved, that my family will be healed, that my family will be restored because my God is a reconciling God. He is the king of reconciliation. He reconciled us to him through Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. So I'm like, if you could do that, in the midst of our sin, you say you didn't want to destroy us no more. So you created a way to be able to stay in relationship with us. Then there's a way that you can bring my family back together again. And I began to fast and I began to pray and I shut everything out of my life that told me that it wasn't possible for God to heal, for God to recover my family. And then I would join myself with people on the path to say, will you pray with me? Will you pray with me for seven days straight every day? Give, I would get a word to help encourage me to stay on the path of putting my faith in God for what was possible for my life. And so, you know, last month we celebrated eight years of marriage. That's right. Right. And I needed to be able to see my faith working in my life where I had so much despair, where I had so much unbelief. I needed to see that it was possible for a change to be made there before right. that I continued to go out working with other people that I needed to get my own home in order. And I realized that to get my physical home in order with other people in it, that this home right here, my heart, my mind, my spirit needed to be in order. So. I tell you, I appreciate you sharing that experience with depression. I think that it's such an important topic and I've done shows on it before. And I think it's important because uh, my experience with it was very different than that. I uh, learned very young that God didn't love me as a queer woman. And that is something that I had uh, in my belief system that was running my uh, stuff. So I, I was ashamed of the fact that I, re I refused to give up on talking to God. I was ashamed of that because I thought God didn't like me or who I was and that I was being extra naughty. And so I didn't have the uh, safety of going to God in that way. I just didn't have that. And so my depression, actually, uh, I was led out of it with what faith I was able to maintain from spiritual abuse I'd acquired in the world as a queer person. Some of that, as well as medication, as well as I had to stop drinking and drugging and community. So it's been uh, a lot less of a sexy moment for me coming out of that depression uh, than what you just described for you. Not sexy. I don't mean sexy. I just mean like when you said what you just said, that was very powerful and beautiful. And, and people need to hear it. And also, I want to say that it can look different for others, too. And, and the faith that you're speaking of and the choice to, you said at one point, do I want to live in anger, rage, and bitterness, or do I want to live in love, hope, and forgiveness? That that is the choice, right? Even in depression, we have to make a decision if I'm not going out tonight, I'm choosing depression. It's a hard decision to make when you're in that place. You know, it can feel virtually impossible. Absolutely. And also, if we call in comfort, if we ask for help, if we reach outside of the darkness we're in, 
that hope can come. Girl, we might have to do this again. Ha. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, we might have to do this again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and for those that are interested in my book, they could um, go to my website, which I believe you have the link. Um, yeah, it'll all be in the show notes for sure. Yeah, they can order um, books from there. I also have a companion workbook that goes with the book because what I find is that people have a lot of like shame and guilt about where they are emotionally and work really hard to, you know, cover it up from the world. And what I want people to know is that they are worth the work required to heal. Yeah. If they're going to try at it by themselves (laughs) physically, then I do have a companion book that goes with my book um, to help them on that journey. That's wonderful. And you also help people one-on-one, yeah? I do. I do um, coaching work more so than therapy, although I am licensed to do therapy. Um, It's just more of a matter of coaching because I like to put concrete action to what we're talking about. Yeah, Yeah, you're a good coach. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Honestly, thank you for all of the work that you do. Thank you for being such a bright light in this crazy ass world. Uh, Thank you for, I'm just so glad I met you. I feel the same. It's a privilege to have you in my life. This has been another episode of Just Say It. I'm your host, Jen Slumack. I don't want to thank you for coming by. I encourage you to go to my website, www.soulnotskin.com. Tell your friends if you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time.